0: I didn't have a huge budget, I knew I wanted to do this, so how do you do it?
1: To be a professional to build our portfolios doesn't start with the traveling.
2: It's not urban at all. (laughs) There's wildlife everywhere.
1: There's a lot about the experience in that as far as learning about the wildlife behavior too, to collect the quality of images that we strive to have in our portfolios. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, I am joined by our hosts, Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, Missy McKenzie, and myself, Mark Raycroft. We are excited to have our producer, Missy, on board today so she can keep us on track as we move along. Guys, how's it going? Mike, before the podcast, you were saying it was hot in Denver, but you blew me away with what you said happened in Florida last weekend as far as temperature.
0: Well, it was crazy. It's well, to start out, it's 85 degrees right now at 5:30 in Denver in May, so you wouldn't think that's a little odd, but I who knows. But Florida was above 90% humidity and it was about 94 degrees. So toasty. Yeah, the minute you get out there and start working, you're just soaked. But my skin felt
1: buttery. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yes, <laughs> yes. And you've got a bit of a tan going on now too. Bonus. Got the
0: tan. Yep. I didn't. I, I did put sunscreen on my ears and my nose and my face, but I let my arms get a little. You know. But I got the farmer's tan going on now. Uh,
1: it's better than nothing. It's a good yep. way to start. Yep. You can't yep. really be on a commercial shoot and just strip down, right? To get that balanced. It would have looked a
0: little funky in a
1: Speedo. I was going to go there, but I was butting my tongue. I'm like, better not, better not. There we go. Here's Depends Michael on Morrow. the type of this?
2: commercial shoot. Yes, exactly.
0: Right on. Yeah. How about you, Ron?
2: It's balmy up here as well. It's it's windy again today, but it's uh, low to mid-80s, and the sun is shining. We've come off of about 3 straight weeks of rain. I thought we were living in Washington this year. It's it's put down a lot of moisture, so it's been a good spring.
1: What about Canada? It's it's been a slow spring. It's been cold and rainy and the odd sunny warm day. Ah, so many stories to tell. I picked guess what I picked today for the first time this year. Picked flowers. Asparagus. Already? Wow. For those audio listeners who don't have the privilege of seeing our video, although some of this will be on YouTube, you can see asparagus. Now, how does this tie into a wildlife photography podcast? It Does does. Wildlife eat it. Well, you know, no. I have never seen animals eat it. You'd think they would because it's so nutritious. That's not how this story starts. The story is from many years ago. I am not going to mention names because it would be too embarrassing, <laughs> but another moose photographer friend of mine was filming the moose rut and a biologist friend of his came up to him and handed him a mason jar full of liquid. And the photographer dude says, what's this? And after the guy put it in his hands, he says, it's my pee. <laughs> and the guy says, what? He says, wait a minute, this is pee that, you know what happens when, we all know what happens when we eat asparagus, right? Three hours later, there's this aroma with urine as it comes out. This biologist dude claimed that it made it smell identical to cow in heat urine, that if he used this mason jar of liquid, it would help with his photos. I don't believe it for a second. And I don't think that's a good way to make friends in the wildlife photography world. But it was a great story, and I couldn't believe it was for real, but it was. That's my asparagus story. Well, hold on a sec.
0: So this yeah. year, this last year when I was filming The Rut, and I got so in that situation where I was able to watch that, that moose pit and all that mm-hmm. stuff that they were building, and right. you could smell the... Asparagus. And it was... I thought it smelled more like pine saw. You know, it's close.
1: There's definitely a musk that you can get off those oh, animals. And it was pungent. I mean, if,
0: you could have probably smelled it 50, 100 yards away.
1: Oh, I'm downwind, absolutely. And, and for those of us that have filmed them for years, it's actually a smell that we kind of like, right? Say, like, oh, ruts on. I like that smell. <laughs> Gets you going. Elk. Whitetails, moose, you know, elk is a little more sweet of a smell on a bull. You can just pick it up. But, yeah, definitely a lot of smell and pheromones going on there. But whether whether the asparagus would work, I honestly am not going to try. But I thought it was a good story to tie into today because I was walking through our old orchard, and there it was. Each spring it pops up, and we get about a month of wild asparagus, tons of it. Although, here's another s- segue story now that we have so many black-legged ticks it's not as much fun picking the asparagus because they're all out now too so it's a matter of watching for them not so much in the fields as in the hardwoods but still have to be aware of them so
0: so it only grows for a month and then it quits you can't get it all summer long
1: you know i've only had it for a month here about that The, the trouble is i travel and so it sprouts up so quickly you give it four days of sunshine and it goes to seed the trick is to keep cutting it off, and it keeps growing, right? So if you keep doing that, and so I managed to do that for a few weeks, but then eventually it gets out of hand on me, and as soon as it goes to seed, I let it be so that it will seed for the next year, and we have more plants, and it's interesting, it you know, over the 20 some years that we've been here, there was a patch, so the, the previous owner had planted this stuff, two rows of it up in the orchard, but it's now dispersed. Some of that's died off, and now they're just clumps of plants. You know, within a 200-yard radius of it kind of thing. And so it's just a matter of finding those new plants. So it's a fun hide-and-seek kind of thing in the spring. But it's cool just to be able to get it. And then you see all the songbirds and everything else going on. But, yeah, but with the ticks now, I I don't do it as much. So I'll wait and maybe do it twice a week, if that, and just go and try and get a big bunch and then, you know, make sure I take off my outer layer and throw it in the freezer and do all the tick precautionary measures that we need to do. Another thing, people can't see this unless they watch on YouTube, but I'm wearing my Osmo pocket on my hat today. You sure are. And and yes, so it's just a cap that I ordered with a GoPro mount. Now, Michael has pointed out to me at the beginning of this podcast that it may, or before the podcast, it may be better to get a mountain biking helmet that might be more stable and they can come with a mount on them as well. But I've mounted this because I'm trying to MacGyver a way to make use of this on my canoe trip that's coming up this weekend, going into the interior of Algonquin Park for four or five days. And I had the chest mount, like we've talked about on a previous podcast, but I just envisioning, wanted to do time lapse canoeing across lakes, but having a chest mount and paddling the canoe where my hands and paddle go across so frequently would not work. So I wanted to get the Osmo Pocket up out of the line of sight of my arms and putting it on my head is a way to do that i am a little reserved because it's got the bluetooth right in front of my brain and don't want that going on for too long i'm old school that way so anyway, hold on a sec let's go.
0: like dig a yes. little further into this do you have other mounts because i'm like i'm thinking about it you would want to mount a clamp to the front of the canoe and shoot back to see you and your partner rowing then you'd want to mount it without any people just on the front of the boat. So you just see it carving through the water, right? The, I mean, you could do so many different things in addition to your time lapse. And there's so many different mounts out there. Do you have all that ready to go?
1: You know, you're opening the Pandora's box of B-roll that is never ending. That <laughs> We would have to paddle across 75 lakes to get it all. But you're right. I mean, you want to try and do all of that. So I do have different mounts I do have uh, the mount that is just a bracket that clamps onto the chest of the backpack, or in this case, to the life vest, the life preserver. So I'll clamp it on there if I'm in the front, Um, and that will work. I also have, yeah, there's a variety of mounts. matter of holding it on a pole, a pole mount, just have it off to the side of the canoe to have the front, have it, this is, you know, a little hairy, just an inch or two above the water kind of thing on a calm day and get that perspective. It's only money,
0: Mark. You're going to get a shot that is going to just be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars if you do
2: it right. Okay. And let me me throw one more kink into this conversation. Uh, One of our listeners, we've messaged back and forth quite a bit. Photographer Terrell Woods just messaged us on Facebook today and said, just when I was starting to use my Osmo Pocket, dji comes out with today i haven't seen it before the osmo action camera right so there's another one that you need to put on there somewhere you got two gopros you can mount the osmo action underneath so it gets everything that's swimming underneath the kayak as long as you don't go too shallow
0: whale sharks and And that kind of stuff. you've
2: got yeah you've got the whole thing covered
0: yeah, so you only need one trip across the lake if you have all the cameras right. in the right spot. If you have
2: 75 cameras, you only need one trip across the lake.
1: Now you're thinking, my friend, right? I can just see what this canoe is going to look like.
2: A porcupine.
1: You know, we we see a ton of canoes on this spring trip. <laughs> I will. On this <laughs> spring trip. And that would be cool to have the underwater. Because sometimes they're just a matter of three or four feet from the canoe as we go by. There are just so many of them. The audio... I've recorded that on other trips in this area. It's a great source for Loon Audio at night because we're so remote, they're so quiet, and the surroundings are quiet, no ambient noise, and to get the Loon calls, I mean, that's a call that works for B-roll everywhere if you're doing any kind of wilderness, water, lake scene. But, yeah, it's a, we'll have to figure out a variety of different ways to work the cameras. The Osmo Action, I received the email from DJI this morning announcing this exciting little identical to gopro looking camera so i'm curious to know what its stats are but obviously i mean to me at first glance it looks like gopro 7 it looks just like it so except
2: it has this one has two screens and one of them's a touch screen on the back
1: is that right okay mm-hmm. so then if you were looking at dji and you were looking at this really elegant very cool osmo pocket that i'm wearing on my head and the new osmo action i mean why are they putting out these two products i mean obviously the action has a a gimbal in it just like the um gopro 7 does for stability
2: the in-body stabilization yep
1: right so what's what's i guess you've got underwater capability with this action just like you would on the gopro whereas the osmo pocket does not isn't submersible
0: I would think they're just so far into this camera market and they've got it figured out. And I don't know if you've looked at footage, a lot of the stuff from your Osmo, but in the right light, it's beautiful footage. Sure. So they probably have that same technology or better technology in this little camera and why not do it? And the thing is, is with so many people doing YouTube and Instagram and whatever they're doing personal video for, if you have different reasonably priced cameras that'll do this stuff, they, there must be money in it or they wouldn't make it, right?
1: Sure. So repackage and just hit every market they can.
0: That's my guess. Now, Absolutely. I haven't done any research on it either, so I don't know. Does it do 4K at 240? I doubt right. it. But 4K at 120 probably. I don't know. Did you guys look at any of the stats on it?
2: I just, oh, The only thing that I saw, it was just kind of a preliminary announcement type of message. Uh, just said that it did 4k and you could get up to a 12 megapixel still off of it or you could pull a 12 megapixel still from the footage but i didn't see anything about you know frame rates or anything like that
0: i'll look into it and i'll give a report on the next one because it probably it has to do something better or different i mean because if you already have a gopro 5 or 7 which do 4k already the seven's better than the five because it has that in the stabilization built into the gopro and i've seen a lot of comparisons between the osmo pocket and the gopro seven and quite honestly the stabilization stabilization works great in both of them so mm-hmm. you know i don't know what it would have in there that would well, the make GoPro Seven's
1: submersible too right whereas the five you needed your housing on it
0: no the five yeah. submersible too it's, Is it? Uh, it doesn't require yeah.
1: housing Really? So the one I've got in my backpacks a four. Yeah. There. So
0: that one still had the housing. Yeah. Okay. All right. But GoPro has a deal going on right now. If you send in an old camera, right, they give you a hundred bucks off that seven, and I think it's right. three hundred and fifty bucks. So you can get a GoPro for two hundred and fifty bucks by sending in an old camera. So there we go with the so's. Put. <laughs> I've got. I don't know how many GoPros laying around here, all the way back to, like, the GoPro 2. So just send in a GoPro 2 and get your 100 bucks
1: off, and then... I just have the 4, but I'll send it in. That's a good idea. Upgrade it to the 7. But, you know, it's only going to be applicable in cases where we want to film, and it makes sense to, like Ron's pointing out, more than one angle simultaneously. Because otherwise, the Osmo Pocket will do everything I need. I've got the Osmo 2 that mounts the phone, but, right, if we can do th- two or three perspectives at one go, then why not? Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. So, cool. So, another thing.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am laughing because we have Missy, our producer, on today's podcast. And before we started, we had warnings about certain words that we repeat too frequently. <laughs> and that two-letter one is one of them.
0: <laughs>
1: I will avoid that if I can. Here's another neat for interior remote trips into the wilderness.
0: Hold so on, I've is this a your pro tip?
1: No, but it's like a pro tip. Oh, okay. Like so it. this is just a bonus. This is a bonus. All right. I was at my buddy Bill's. We're planning this remote canoe trip, and he had this on his table. And I'm like, what is that? Because I have a life straw, which is a straw that you simply stick in the water and suck through it, and it filters it and makes it safe. But he had this device, which is like a Nalgene, is that right? Nalgene bottles, clear bottles, with the straw built into it. So you just scoop it with water, put it, screw it on, and then drink through it. And it's supposed to be good for 100 liters without changing the filter. So super easy, comes with its own clamp, and makes uh, traveling on the go in interior places straightforward and safe to drink. So that's another, that's a little pro
2: tip. Here's another Pre, bonus tip. Pre pro tip. Pre-pro tip. Is Life Straw we talked to a couple of representatives from LifeStraw several years ago and they said that it was it was a good enough filter that you could drink out of an elk wallow. And so we tried it.
0: So <laughs> I tried it. And, and, I just... and
2: you can drink out of an elk wallow without getting giardia, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> That's,
0: that's a testimonial right there. If it actually worked and you didn't get Giardia, that's pretty good.
1: I mean, it probably tasted horrible.
2: Funky like asparagus. Yeah. <laughs>
1: maybe, maybe we should save that announcement for when they're actually sponsoring us someday if they are. But, yeah, wow. That we came around full, full
0: circle. That was nice, Ron.
1: <laughs> the new ones also have a carbon filter in them that helps. Oh, with for taste. A taste, yeah. yep. I would not do yeah. that. I would not go to the Elk Wallow. Oh.
2: Ah. Gotta be a gamer, Raycroft.
1: In many ways, my friend, in many ways. <laughs> Missy has been participating on the Wild and Exposed Instagram feed, putting up stories, and she's having, in my opinion, way too much fun at our expense lately. <laughs> but it's good because it shows our audience how much fun we really do have on our adventures and where are you finding all these little moving parts i've done stories and i figured out how to put font and text and different colors and sizes but you've got funny things jumping around on the stories how are you making that come to life and why are you so mean
2: <laughs> you just have to mess around with it a little bit it's too much fun <laughs> notice there isn't any pictures of me up there
0: <laughs> oh and i've got plenty of pictures of everybody so we're going to keep them going but The whole thing was we had, you know, it was just a matter of finding, well, I just wanted more interaction with the YouTube or with our uh, Instagram audience. And I don't have time or the knowledge. It's exactly what you said, Mark. It's like, how do you find all these little moving things? And you can do a little poll and you can do all this different stuff. And I knew she knew how to do it. So last week we were like, we just decided let's, spice it up a little bit and show the other side of well the behind the scenes particularly ron's like sneaky moves and stances that are really pretty spectacular he's got there's
2: there's more to come too there's other more little gadgets to play with that i haven't messed with yet but i have to get the right images it's gonna be fun (laughs) yeah i'm gonna show missy hard at work uh with the next one I'm not scared because I know I have a lot more of you
1: guys. I was going to say, we all have have access to create these stories, so it's going to be a fun little back and forth.
0: No, but it's a good addition, and I think it's just fun to put that kind of stuff out there, and you really
1: do see the kind of fun that we do have. That's the point of it. I mean, as far as talking about the ins and outs of what we do, it's the fun that everybody enjoys about being in the field with friends and camaraderie, so...
2: Yes, and a lot of people post their images and stuff like that, you know, on the Instagram stories, which is great. But we already post our pictures on Instagram that way. So I thought I would post behind the scene type things of you guys because they hear you guys talking and everything like that. And I thought it would be kind of fun for them to see you guys actually out there and the silly things that you guys do. So maybe one day I'll put some audio out there too, but right now we'll stick with the. Yeah, I think we need to be really careful with the audio.
1: Well, it's a lot of fun. So if you haven't checked it out, go to our Wild and Exposed Instagram feed and check out the stories that pop up daily lately. I did see a
0: comment on one of those stories where somebody said, you know, I listen to the audio in your podcast, but now that I'm seeing these pictures, I want to see more video.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. In defense of the stance and the sneakiness, though, it's all about the athleticism, really. Yeah. When it gets, when it comes right, when it comes right down to it,
0: Ron's a lot like a ninja,
2: rotund ninja. <laughs>
1: We'll have to keep cycling some of those around so people, I mean, it pops off every 24 hours, right? So Ron bringing that up about, you know, how he likes to sneak up and the way he moves. If people didn't see it today, we better put that up again a couple more times over the
2: weeks ahead. I have a ride to highlight. I think we're all right. We've got uh, other images that we can throw up there. I know somebody that can make that happen, though. It'll happen. Good.
1: Good. Today's podcast is wildlife photography on a budget and sharing some ideas, insights, and perspectives on what you can do without planning a grand trip to somewhere across the continent or planet. Now, don't get me wrong. We all love to look forward to and plan those, but they can be few and far between. So how to make the most of what's in your own backyard, in your vicinity, and have fun with that. Before we get into that subject, we will each offer our pro tips and cover our question of the week. Guys, who's got pro tip number one? Door number one is being opened by...
2: I'll go first. Along with the DJI announcement, Adobe announced another tool. So for the first time since 2015, uh, Lightroom has an additional tool that's being added to the the slider bar. And it's a texture slider. So what you're going to see is some of these, some of these lenses that, you know, you've got the 600 F4s from both Canon and Nikon, very, very, very sharp lenses. Michael shoots the 200 to 400. Um, Again, very sharp lens all the way through the focal distance range. And then you've got some off brands that just, they're sharp, but they're just not quite as sharp. And this texture tool, what it is going to allow people to do, and I noticed the image that they showed to, uh, to kind of make the announcement and, and show the difference was a picture of a mandarin duck. And just with this texture slider, they sharpened this image a ton, and all the feather detail just popped off of this bird. It was just a, a headshot, but it was pretty impressive. I'm excited to go back and try it with some of the the animals that have fur just to see if it'll help define those edges of the uh edges of the hairs you know on a bear or on, a, on an elk on a moose that kind of thing but this texture slider looks like it's going to be a great tool for, so they call uh,
0: it texture but it, it's not adding texture it's working it's with not, texture that's in the image
2: yeah so adobe's been talking for a couple years about They're starting to develop some artificial intelligence in their software. So the algorithms in the software can go in and determine, you know, where those each pixel should have been to make it a sharper image. That's kind of what they're working towards. So something that's just a little bit out of focus, you can almost bring it back into focus. And so that's what this texture tool does. It's kind of a predictive type of algorithm So as you increase or decrease, it's going to increase the sharpness of the image. And to bring everything out of it, to get everything out of it that it has to offer, it's going to have to be a sharp image to begin with. You're not going to be able to throw something in there that's totally out of focus and end up with a sharp image. But I think that's what they're starting to move toward.
0: You sent me a video earlier today on YouTube, and the guy's last name was Yarrow. Yes. Is that why you sent that? Is that guy using that? Because I watched that video and I the level of detail that he has in the images that he was showing yeah. is pretty extreme and pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But I don't know. it wasn't it wasn't in combination or the two weren't Okay. I didn't see him at the same time.
0: Not coincidental, it just was a cool video. Yeah. Well that's interesting. I'd like to try that out. I mean you don't want to take all the artistry out of what we do, right? I mean, there's something to be said for getting a nice sharp, sharp image right out of the gate. But if you do have a situation where you can enhance it a little bit, that's kind of cool.
2: Yeah. I think it, it You know, it does take away a little bit or potentially. But I think that's the direction that all these guys are going with the software. There's going to be more and more artificial intelligence. There's going to be more and more improvements that are made to our images so I, we either adapt to it or get overrun by those that do. That's, I guess, my personal feeling.
1: Yep, I agree. Well, I mean, the technology has been changing for years and years. Even in Photoshop, I've been using Unsharp Mask for years. And if there's just a component, you know, if that animal's eye, we know the eye is paramount. It has to be the sharpest thing on, on the image. And if it's not, I can just highlight around the eye and do an Unsharp Mask and bring it in. A little bit more so I mean that's been something I've been practicing for a long time this just takes it further and you're right I mean we have to adapt I mean there's it's not changing the image per se right you're still the same composition
2: right yep
1: well I can remember (laughs) and I
2: think we've
0: talked about this on the podcast before but I can remember when autofocus first came out and I remember myself saying who needs that just another gimmick (laughs) now when I'm shooting stills I wouldn't dream of throwing you it. You have a hard manual. time
1: finding a lens just to shoot manual on now.
0: Yeah, unless you're buying a cine lens, it's, uh, I mean, everything's out of focus, so just still go with right. it. Embrace it. Go with it. Make it happen. Make it work.
1: Create your vision. Be the best that you can be. You be you. <laughs> you be 40.
2: <laughs>
1: or past that. Whoops. okay my pro tip for this week is and my wife might argue this I'll start into the Queen song I like to ride my bicycle I like to ride my bike that was Queen right guys it was good why a bicycle so a mountain bike covers ground relatively silently compared to walking and there's no scent. And you just a matter of carrying your backpack and be ready to film. However, there's certain places where this works and doesn't. First, you have to be able to do it. and it has to be in an area that allows bikes and have logging road access, stuff like this. But I have got managed to get close to so many species that on foot would have been impossible without the mode of transportation of having a bicycle. In university, there used to be an arboretum near the campus that when I could spare an hour or two in the evening and didn't have to study my buns off to pass my courses I'd hop on my bike go to this arboretum cycle around and I could get within 50 yards sometimes of white-tailed deer before they saw me and drop the bike and take some pictures wasn't a professional at it back then but was certainly having fun and learning about it without the bicycle there would be no way walking on the dirt gravel roads so where it's possible, a bicycle can facilitate getting closer to wildlife in those situations. So something to keep in mind and pack along for when you can. Some of the north country, we've been using it for years where there's limited access roads and we can get on a mountain bike and access some of the that caribou country and stuff like that, too. So you could just get to places you might not be able to in a vehicle and be a lot quieter. Something to keep in mind and keep in your, in your, on your gear list. Well, there's a couple more things to
0: that, too, right? They're, the the cool thing about bikes is you can get a variety. You can get skinny tires. You can get fat tires. So if you're going to ride in the snow, you get a fat tire bike or the sand. And then some of these bikes have electric assist now. So you don't have to be like Johnny in shape.
2: Now you're talking light
1: roof slider scales here.
0: <laughs> but you can you can have that electronic assist which i think some of these bikes will go up to 60 70 miles on that charge and you just move a little bit faster and you get in i use them all the time in alaska there's places here in colorado where it's a lot better to approach on a bike and you cover more ground so rather than walking and There's just something different if if you're moving faster. I think they're just a little bit more tolerant.
1: Well, yeah, walking. We're lucky if we can do ten miles in a day across some kinds of terrain, looking for wildlife. But on a bicycle, you just have a leg up, cover a lot more distance, can glass a lot more country, access a lot more, and again, it is so much quieter. Yep.
0: Well, and in addition to covering more country you cover it faster. So even if you're only going three miles, which there's a lot of places in Alaska where I'll go where you're only riding three miles to get to a coastline or something like that, you guys can probably hear my dog barking.
1: He's excited about the idea. He's ready to go. Yeah, He'll run alongside your bike.
0: <laughs> but to walk those three miles, it's going to take you 45 minutes. If you're going to ride those three miles, it might take you 15 minutes, and, and then you've got an extra half an hour to work with. So there's a lot of good things about having a bike if the situation allows it i highly recommend it and i use it for exercise too when i'm not photographing and it's just a good form of you know it's not that jolting kind of treadmill or you know you just don't put that stress on your joints quite as bad so i like it for that
1: i think we doubled up on the pro tip
0: yep that was a double double whammy no whammies so my pro tip this week, I got an email, I think it was two weeks ago, and this doesn't necessarily pertain to wildlife photography because it's not recommended to, to use this piece of equipment with wildlife, but it's, it's all in regards to a drone. So I do a lot of commercial work and we use drones for that a lot. That, just that point of view is different. It's new. It, great establishing shots to be legal you have to and fly commercially if you're going to use it in a production where you're actually making money you're supposed to be licensed and it's all done in the US it's all done through the FAA which means you have to get a take a test it's a lot like being a professional pilot you go in and take this test and then you learn all the rules and regs on what you can do for example you can't fly if there's a ceiling, if there's a the cloud ceiling 800 feet above the ground, you're the highest you can fly is 300 feet. But if you didn't take this test, you would never know that you have to stay 500 feet below a cloud or 2000 feet horizontally from a cloud. There's all kinds of little rules and regs that kind of fall into this whole drone thing. But what happened was is you that first test, it only works for two years or it's a two-year reoccurring test. So I got an email a couple of weeks ago, and they said, oh, guess what? Your drone is, your drone license is going to expire. You need to come in and take your reoccurrent test. And I did. So my tip is just, if you do have a license, pay attention and make sure you're getting in to get your recurrent. And then if you don't have a license and you're flying commercially, get a license. Because you do learn a lot, and you're a much safer pilot out there with that drone. The other thing, too, is any drone in the U.S. that weighs over 0.55 pounds has to be registered with the FAA, whether it's personal use or commercial use, which means just about any drone you buy has to be registered. I have a hard time believing that very many people do that. For one, who knows? I mean, how would they know? I guess there might be some stuff in the literature when you buy the drone that says this must be registered in the U.S. or in Canada or wherever the laws apply. What what that does is it allows people, or it allows accountability, right? So if you're out flying that drone for personal use and you get a flyaway or you get something that happens, they can attach that back to you. Again, Mm -hmm. it's just being more responsible. You don't want to cause a problem with the drone. You know, you could do some pretty horrible things flying, um, you know, uh, amongst other air traffic, manned air traffic, and you just want to stay out of those situations. And then also with wildlife, I never fly around wildlife. I just, it's not legal for one, but there's some gray areas. For example, have you guys seen the new series on Netflix called Our Planet? Yes. Yes pretty awesome and they were showing one of the things they talked about in the behind th- behind the scenes series was a lot of the marine wildlife if you're out on a boat and you're a thousand miles offshore you're not getting a helicopter out there to get that aerial footage but now with drones you're able to ha- just launch the drone from wherever you're at and have 20-30 minutes in the air you know depending on how long your batteries last so now they're getting images in some of these areas where they never they haven't been able to get before and if you watch our planet there were some blue whales that they got it was unbelievable it just gives you a whole new appreciation for the ocean and the wildlife and and i think it's important in those situations to show that footage because i think it gives people a better idea what's out there and what we need to protect and what we need to to plan for it as the future moves
1: i think it's a great perspective to share with people so with marine mammals as far as flying a drone, are the rules different than with terrestrial animals? Can you do that just because they have some, you know, they can go below the surface and get away and not be bothered by it. Or is there a certain elevation with the drone above the water that makes it fine or it maybe specific licenses for some projects perhaps too. Right.
2: I think in that case there was, they did discuss cause there was a behind the scenes thing that Michael suggested that we watch. And they did discuss some of the licensing and some of the, uh, the marine parks that they had. So they did, they did have commercial license and they did have permission to do some of those, um, some of those flights. But then in other locations, I think that was when they were doing the, the walrus, they had to be permitted in some of those flights though. You're kind of in uncontrolled area and they were very respectful. I mean, they didn't fly right above the whale. They were well above it getting a wide angle shot they never approached the whale with it they just you know kind of hovered over to get that footage but if you watch that behind the scenes uh, video they'll they did discuss some of the licensing requirements that they had to go through to be in some of those locations that they were in and to be able to fly in those locations
0: i think it's a, a lot of it's a judgment call and there's the marine mammal act you do have to stay a certain distance away from now when we were out last year with the whales in Seward, those, I asked the guy, I said, can we fly a drone out here? Is it legal? And he's like, yeah, I think it is. It's legal as long as you're not in a national park, but you, you just need to be respectful. I mean, if you're flying 200 feet off the water, you're probably not, it's no different than a, a manned aircraft or something that's up there. And, and animals in Alaska are used to aircraft. It's not a problem. But drones are a little different. They have a little different noise. They're a lot smaller. So I, I would think that animals would react differently to a drone. But I think you just play it by ear. You definitely don't want to go. I've seen situations where, and I know of wildlife officers that will track people down. If you see somebody was out flying and they saw a herd of elk and they fly over that herd of elk and then the elk start running. Those guys will track down who took that footage and write them a ticket for harassing wildlife. Absolutely. And rightly so. Rightly so yeah. It should happen.
2: Yeah. yeah was, and in in Wyoming, anyway, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your drone. You're going to lose any cameras that are attached to it. You're going to lose the footage. So there, there are some penalties in place for that, but I agree with them because they do protect the wildlife in the sense that, you know, not everybody's going to go out and do that. We had a guy make a a, about a 20 minute video he chased a herd elk in an ultralight airplane and they got his plane they got his truck that he hauled the plane with his trailer all the camera gear so and and i think that's the right thing to do in those cases he was straight up harassing those elk he had them strung out for miles and just kept running them yep so I, i think that was the right decision on their part
0: Like we say all the time, the wildlife comes first and just use your judgment. You don't, you know, but if you want to go out there and get an establishing shot to show the topography and then again, if you've taken your tests and you're a licensed pilot, you know if you're in airspace that you can actually fly in. And if you take that test, you you know, there's apps on the phone where you can pull it up provided you have cell phone coverage where you're flying. It'll show you where you can fly and can't fly. So you just stay up Stay abreast of what you're doing and know what the what you can do in the places. Like, for example, national parks, 100% off limits. Don't do it. Not legal. But those maps are going to help you out.
1: No, that's great. I wasn't bringing it up for an ethics concern. I, I was bringing it up just to see if there was a difference. I mean, we clearly are aware, and, and people have to be aware and follow those distances to respect wildlife. But it was more just it's really – Extremely revealing and interesting to see these ocean situations from the air, mm-hmm. and I believe that they can have enough. Personally, I believe they can have enough elevation that they wouldn't be bothering uh, whales, for instance. Right. You know, I wouldn't. If there was a polar bear swimming, I'd feel differently about it. You know, because it's going from one place to another. But it, it depends on the distance the device is from the animal. Exactly. So, I yeah,
0: think I, as long as you're not altering the behavior there's that gray area right and then if you watch these big productions like our planet these guys are flying these drones that have lenses that have the ability to zoom in and have a little reach to them so they're able to do a lot more with a small drone whereas if you're going to get a little mavic which is one of the popular small drones or even one of the i think it's called the phantom 4 pro it's one it's one focal plane, I mean, or it's one, um, what am I trying to say? It's just a
1: set lens. Yeah, it's just so a it's set. Kind of, it's a wide angle.
0: Pretty much wide, super wide. Mm-hmm. And you just don't want to try to move in just to get that full frame shot because you are going to be way too close doing that. But I do know wildlife researchers and biologists will use them to, to help find animals, again, from a distance, but it's just a tool that allows them to save some time locating and then they bring it back and then they know which way they have to go to go find a goat or find a sheep or find something that they're looking for to do some of their wildlife
1: research. Oh, it's great there. It saves a lot of time compared to hiring a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time and money. Just for population dynamic surveys and stuff like that. Yep. So Ron, that was a good one. Different subject. And drones is something people have to be aware of. And like you said, just... Taking the course, you learned a lot that was worthwhile. So, the reoccurring license was it as lengthy a test and, and time commitment as the initial one, or is it abbreviated because it's a re your licensing again, or how did that? It's abbreviated.
0: So, I think the first test was 120 questions. If I, it's either a well, maybe not, maybe it was 80, I don't know. This one was 40, and you have to get an 80% or above to pass it I studied for probably two and a half days just brushing up on a lot of the airspace and brushing up on charts and you have to know weather. you have to know a lot of one of the I bought a couple of courses online so I could watch some videos and listen to people that actually do this stuff all the time and one guy said you're not that far away from actually getting a manned pilot license and there's more to it obviously but you've Learned quite a bit, and if you were into it, you're probably just another couple of weeks of studying, and you could go in there and do pretty well on the man. You, you still have to fly, and you have to do all this stuff with the man pilot, but at least you could pass the knowledge part of it. It's a pretty in-depth process, but I like it. I, like, I had a lot of fun taking it this time, and I, had, I learned even more than what I thought I knew from the first go-round.
1: Right on. And it's a good tip to get those courses online and and access that, too, to brush up, right? Yeah, I
0: have an app on my phone, and so I could take sample tests wherever I was at, and then I bought these courses where I could watch videos, and well worth it. Awesome. So
1: this week's podcast focuses on wildlife photography on a budget, keeping it close to home, how to get great images, and have fun.
0: Michael, take it away. This all started, I was talking to a buddy that listened to our podcast and he references a lot of the stuff that he feels like he's like a starting photographer. He's got a good grasp, but not a great grasp on everything. And he feels like a lot of times we pass over stuff that we assume everybody knows, but they probably don't. And so I started thinking about that. And with that thought, I started thinking about how I started and I didn't have a huge budget. I knew I wanted to do this. So how do you do it? And the way I did it, living in the Denver area at that time, there's tons of places within five miles of my place where I could actually photograph all kinds of wildlife. I could photograph baby ducks in the spring. I could photograph great horned owls. Because what I find in Denver is you, you go to some of these little natural areas and you'll see a lot of bird watchers out there and you'll see a lot of joggers And you go to those places and you just walk around and you can stop somebody that's walking in the park every day for exercise and ask them, Hey, what'd you see? Have you seen any foxes? Have you seen any owls? Have you seen anything? And I used to get all kinds of information from people like that. And then I could take that knowledge and then go out and start working on that subject. And then what I was able to do is if you do find baby ducks or something, that's something that's good for two or three weeks. So you can perfect that image for not a lot of money and just a little bit of time, you know, daily going out there and coming back, looking at your stuff, making sure you're, you know, hopefully you can make it better the next day or you got better light. I think it just forced me to be a better photographer on a budget because I just had those specific subjects that were close to home. Didn't cost me a lot of time, a lot of money. And I just thought it was something that we could all talk about because I know Ron does a lot of the same things up in Wyoming. And I know you up there, Around your property, you have turkeys, you have deer, you have a lot of stuff that's nearby that you don't have to go traveling around and I think it's just attainable so it 's a good thing for us to talk about
1: nearby and natural yep exactly it's, well and you know we all for me i mean I love the charismatic megafauna, and to be a professional to build our portfolios it doesn't start here it doesn't start with the traveling it never does for most people just because of the budget like you pointed out but as one becomes more established you know you want to focus on areas where these animals are in better concentrations and have some level of habituation toward people ideally to build a portfolio but that's not how most people start like you talked about so for me i was finishing university it was just the perfect timing when i started my career because I didn't have financial obligations. I was fortunate that way. So for those of you that are listening that might just happen to be at that stage of life in their in your early 20s and don't have the commitment of a mortgage and family at this point in time, that's ideal. I was fortunate to find this passion and path at that point in time and could build a portfolio, but I did not have a budget to travel to these iconic destinations that so many people do now for tours or workshops or even on their own. So I had to make it work where I, where I lived and I had a pickup truck that my grandfather had left to me. I had a camper on the back, not even, I had a cap on the back with a mattress and traveled wherever I could afford to travel and photograph. And there, there are lots of things around, like you're pointing out, no matter where you live, there are going to be subjects big and small worth photographing and experiencing. So it doesn't require a lot of money, it requires time. And every trip that we do again, we will likely encounter in big and small, amazing things on every trip. And it doesn't have to require a jetliner and traveling far away.
0: Well, and I think to add on to that, it's you perfect your craft too, before you do start spending the money and do start traveling. If you can put yourself in a variety of different situations with ducks or with, a fox that's the local fox at the local greenbelt. You have time to spend a day and say it's like midday, horrible sun. Well, you can work on some of the action photos or you can work on stuff like that. And then in the evening, you can work on the light stuff and, and perfecting that so that when you do go to these really exotic places, you're not spending time learning that stuff. You've had experience with a similar situation with something that was very attainable and you hopefully can produce a lot more when you get to that location. So it's very important for, in my career, that was how I started. I built the whole portfolio basically on urban wildlife. We even had an urban wildlife photo club. And it was super cool because everybody would come in. We were all super secret about our spots, right? Because we all had an owl nest or we all had a, you know, a fox den or we all had a place where deer were right there on the edge of town. You know, and you tried to keep it because there's so many people that wanted to shoot it you just kind of kept your own. And then we had competitions and that forced me to get better. And you just wanted to, you could do it on a budget and you could do it on the weekends or you could do it after work, you know, in the summertime or even now you get off at work at four or five or whatever. There's still a couple hours where you can go out there and make something happen.
2: And for me, it was, I was out there anyway for my job. And, but there were all these things going on around me that I got to see. I had the pleasure of seeing every day that i would come home and tell stories i did have the financial obligations when i got started with photography and so i it took me a little bit a little bit of time to kind of build up the equipment that was required to get out there and to be able to capture good images just the time out there and just wanting to tell the story and the photo or in my case i started with a you know a low end video camera just a little camcorder And that's what that's what I use to tell the stories of everything. I didn't have to just come home and verbalize what I saw or what I experienced. I could actually show footage or show an image. And that was what kind of got me into photography. I just happened to live in an area in Wyoming, you know, where we don't it's not urban at all. (laughs) There's wildlife everywhere. I mean, you guys were out here last year and you saw just the the sheer numbers of wildlife and wildlife species that we have the opportunity to capture. And so it was easy to start to, you know, kind of like Michael said, and, and I know you've done, Mark, to be able to start to build that portfolio was a difficult. It, the difficult part was the learning curve because I honestly knew nothing at all and there wasn't a lot of people around that were willing to share or had the knowledge that I was requiring. And so the photography clubs or even, you know, what I did initially was I'd look at the Wyoming wildlife magazine and then I would try to touch base. Usually they have an email address for the editor. I would email the editor and then they would forward my email address to some of the photographers And some of those people were kind enough to start to give me, you know, little tidbits here and there, how I could improve. And then from there, it was, I had the knowledge to find the wildlife. I had the knowledge to get close to the wildlife. It was the experience that I needed uh, on the photography end that I had to kind of seek out and hunt for a little bit more.
0: The flip side to that for me was being in an urban area with, I don't even know how big Denver is, but. 2 million people if you showed up at a really popular little green belt we call them green belts here so it'll be a whatever a hunt you know a thousand acre area that's not developed and generally there's wildlife there you go to those places and you would run across other photographers and I did learn a lot that way too where you see somebody doing something a little different and most people are pretty open with sharing and it just ex- exposed you to different things, whether it was a different lens or if it was a different tripod or, if, you know, maybe they had some sort of blind or something that they were using to, to make a hide to photograph a, a fox den or something. So I was able to use those opportunities to learn a little bit about the equipment and share some knowledge back and forth and then also just perfect that light, perfect that action, perfect that stuff so that when I did get out to... A cool area like alaska or, or florida with all the birds you know you had some sort of base to work from
1: mm-hmm. and there's a lot about the experience in that as far as learning about the wildlife behavior too to collect the quality of images that we strive to have in our portfolios and that will come through that kind of experience so of course people starting out will continue to upgrade the quality of their equipment so that their images improve the quality of their product improves but what's Paramount is the time in the field with those animals, those birds, those species, to understand their behavior, to be able to properly capture the images. Not and there's the light too, the quality of light, but just the behavior of the animals and then the subtleties of our interaction with them. How many times have we been busted by even in if it's in a greenbelt area, you know? And there's so much wildlife in greenbelt areas, people just don't realize and tap into it. I did a lecture in in Toronto on on the moose book last winter and this guy came up to me after and he's an avid amateur nature photographer and he was saying, you wouldn't believe how many people don't know how many foxes and coyotes and deer live right there and are used to people so they're far more tolerant. So in those situations, you have the ability to watch the animal's behavior and potentially photograph behavior in a way that you couldn't do just going out into a back property on a farmer's field, expecting a deer to do that, or a fox to do that. The foxing's killing me this spring. I'm seeing so many pictures on social media, but I haven't had time to get out. It's such a fun time of year, and fox kits are so playful. And in these urban greenbelt areas, if you can find a den and have a vantage point where you can film them or photograph them without disturbing them, it's a lot of fun. But it's learning the behavior, it's recognizing the behavior, and something over years of practicing this is how how our movement affects the animal and so that we can control that to the best of our ability to come away with the the best results that we can for that experience for that day one story i was out in in a in a park in a national park i was photographing whitetails i had this magnificent buck in this big field with this doe there about 80 yards away the deer knew that I was there. It's a park. They they were used to people. So my approach is subtle, not straight at them, to win to my favor, but I want them to know I'm there. I'm not sneaking up on them. I'm not behaving like a predator. And the reason I mentioned this particular story, I'm in position, I'm photographing these two animals in the rut doing behavior, and all of a sudden they freeze, alarm, ears are up, and they're looking off in the other direction. So we know that by watching wildlife, we see so many things watching them. When they look off somewhere, their ears turn somewhere, their eyes are going in a the direction, they're so much more perceptive than we are that that's how you see and discover other animals. In this case, they came to full alert, looked down the field about 300 yards away, and here's this gentleman coming along with his tripod and his telephoto lens, sneaking Ummerfud style from <laughs> pine tree to pine tree, And it's not that doesn't stop there he's wearing a white hoodie so he's got a whole white top on it's fall it's autumn so the deer are like what's going on why is this big white thing sneaking up on us if he just walked down the edge of the field stopping every 30 yards taking a break taking his time they would have continued with their behavior he would have had an amazing experience but not knowing that being that deer typically run away from people. He was trying to sneak up on them. It was never going to work. He never could get that way. Never get close enough. So, of course, they bolted. And I had a very polite conversation with him, suggesting next time maybe he doesn't wear a white sweater in deer country because they are white-tailed deer. When they run away, they flash their white tail. It's just not the right color. Not any, but at the same time, he didn't need to wear camouflage in this in this scenario because it was a park and the deer were habituated. He just had to be subtle. Be subtle and calm, and more time in the field in these kind of situations is the best place to learn how to interact with animals for success because we all start off and get busted again and again, no matter what animal or bird they're going to take off, they're going to run away, what went wrong, How? what happened so there was no opportunity, and just continue to hone that. And you can also learn from other people that are in these areas as well or through photography clubs ask ask questions you know if you see somebody who has that successful image that you aspire to you don't have to ask them the gps coordinates of where they got it you could ask for the story behind it and maybe some aspects of that story you could learn from as far as the approach the technique the strategy that they employed that you could put into your game plan as well
0: i think that's so valuable and and that is probably the most important thing is that behavior right because if they are acclimated to people somewhat, it just gives you a little leg up so that when you do get in a situation where the animal isn't acclimated, you have an idea of that behavior. And it's probably a little different. You know, An animal that's acclimated to a heavily travely, traveled area is going to have their, let their guard down in a lot of situations more so than an animal that's in the woods but you at least have an idea and it's so that I think is a, it's a cornerstone. I mean, that is one of the things that you can work on. And again, it just doesn't take that much effort as far as money and time to travel to exotic locations. You just, you build that base. If you have that base, you can be really successful when it's time to jump to those other areas.
2: That's what I was going to say is, you know, there, there are often times that we get busted and you have to learn from those mistakes but as you do you know that there's going to be times where yeah you're going to be able to close the the distance and get that image and there are times where you just can't and those times that you can't take advantage of those opportunities to just sit and and learn what those behavior cues are going to be for for the instance when yeah you learned from that you waited the next day you set it up in a different spot. Now you're going to have the opportunity, but you know what to look for. Don't just bail on it. Take advantage of just those times to observe because those are, the, those are the learning opportunities. When you're trying to get images, you don't necessarily see everything. So take advantage of the times where you know the image might not materialize, but the knowledge you're going to gain just by watching and just by spending that time you see the subtle cues. There, there are sounds that you won't hear. So one of the things that I do is, is fox dens, and I photograph both uh, swift fox and red fox. When I find a, a den that's tolerant, there are just some subtleties that, you know, when the adult appears on the horizon, everything's quiet, but that doesn't mean they're gone. It just means the kits are in the den. And then all of a sudden, the adult will appear on the horizon, and they'll start to close the distance. And they're pretty cautious as they close the distance. So you definitely don't want to move. You want to just stay still. And then there's just a real soft verbalization. And when you hear that, you know it's just about to be game on. But if you're making noise, you're moving around, you're never going to hear that verbalization because the adult is going to maintain distance. They're not going to come back to the den because they don't know if it's safe or not. So just sit still, just watch them do their thing, let them be cautious because when they make that verbalization, it's almost like an explosion of fox kits out of those dens sometimes and and then what you'll see is that playfulness that Mark was talking about earlier and you never know what's going to happen.
1: Another I was that's like a, another pro tip in itself for the, that was good. As far as listening, sounds, right? Mm -hmm. Not just watching behavior, but the sounds. You can learn from that. It's never been, and we've touched on this in previous, at least one previous podcast, but there's never been a better time for finding out where to photograph anything on planet Earth because of the power of social media. And that is case in point for what's in your own backyard too. So just take a moment. I want to point out on Instagram, search those hashtags. If you live in... Illinois, you search the hashtag for Illinois for close to home. If you're in Quebec, you search the hashtag and animals, it comes up. And you can, if you search a geographic area instead of an animal, it takes some time because you might want to put in deer and you'll get deer, but it's all over the place, so it doesn't fine tune it. If you put in your geographic area, then you'll have to wade through all of the social media, but any wildlife photograph there will come up as well. Something else I've discovered in my very minimal experience on Facebook, are there are many clubs that allow people in that are nature photography clubs or uh, wildlife or animal enthusiast clubs that post pictures all the time. And these members post them and you can see what they're photographing. And again, they don't give the exact GPS units per se, but you can learn what's available in your area and by doing more and more of these searches you will be able to dial it in and find out where some of these animals are some people divulge where they photograph them right down to the pier or at this this section of woods in this park and along this roadway it's there to be found you know, it used to be we'd have, it was not, didn't exist. You would have to hear from somebody's mouth in person as to where to go. Now there's so much power of social media. So that's a great place to start. If you're curious to know what's available, where you live, it's on Instagram. If it's out there, it's on Instagram and you can find it with enough patience and searching the right hashtags.
0: That's spot so- on. I think, you know, then the next step, once you've done all that, Now it's time to start building your portfolio with those images, right? So you could go to an area that's got, let's just say ducks. And it's the spring and you've got baby ducks and you've got different ages from the ones that just hatched to some that are two or three weeks old. You can build this pretty elaborate portfolio that should do nothing but get better and better and better if you just spend enough time out there doing it. And, you know, you work on the light. You work on that action. You work on different age groups. You can tell the whole life history. I mean, there's just so much you can do. So you want to use these areas to build that. That's how I was able to first start getting published, is I would start with one species and just try to perfect that species. And then I would take that to the local magazine. Ron said, Wyoming Wildlife. We had one called Colorado Outdoors, and they published wildlife images and I think it was 50 bucks you got for an image but it was super awesome to get an image in there and you get that fire built up in you and then you want to go find that next species whatever that is an owl or a fox or a deer or you know just that local stuff and the other thing you can do is you can start incorporating that urban into it so you might find an owl on the light post which is something totally different and then that stands out so you can just play around and just have so much fun. And I guarantee you I could still have just as much fun photographing that stuff. I don't do it nearly as much now, but I, I do miss I think about it every year with those different times of year where I go to different places in the urban area. And that time of year rolls in, and I think, oh, this is when I should be going to just outside of Boulder to photograph deer. I need to go down south because this is where I would always find great horned owl nests or... You can you can spend a ton of time doing that, and I think a lot of people do. But I think there's a lot of people that aspire to these grandiose locations. But there's so much that you can build in just five miles from your house. I would I would assume for most
1: people. And get better and better at your work, at your trade, at the images, the composition. Another thing I'd like to do, and it's it's an opportunity in areas where you have a, a population of ungulates in this case let's say deer that are in the vicinity in one of these green spaces you can tell the story throughout the whole antler cycle you know if you go out every weekend you may not find that individual buck every weekend but if you find them every other weekend and get a photo of the antler growth from now do it now it's spring get out there do it now get the budding antlers just the little bulbs going on and they're probably the big guys are about four points right now two on either side for the Western counters, Eastern counters, count all the points and then film that through the growth over the next couple of months, take pictures of that. And then if end of August, early September, depending on where you live, the velvet shed, you can tell those stories. And it doesn't have to be about deer and antlers, but any of these, like the fox dens or another one, the ducklings, goslings, all that stuff that keep, but it's something I love to do and have been, as far as a photo essay for a potential client, the antler growing story if you can get one or two individuals and tell that whole story that's a great opportunity to sell that story and tell what happened behind the scenes and not only that picture this as a great little four segment frame on the wall this or five images on the wall all running horizontally to show that growth people would love that story any antler aficionado would like buy that right so Plan out some storylines in these in, where these opportunities exist as well. Antler growth is, is one that I love to do, but it, it's rare. But in some of, as far as being able to find the same animal, but there are places you can do it for sure.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean, that relates to you look at National Geographic. A lot of times those guys are working on those assignments for a full year because they have to tell that whole story. They don't just run out and cover it in a two or three week process. It's more like a what 12 month deal. And sometimes it's two years worth Mm -hmm. of time to get every little picture to tell that story of that life history. And it's just on a, on a form, you know, doing it close to home is attainable.
1: Right. Even seasonality, do the same shot through the seasons, landscapes, tell the story of the changing seasons. And then all the the technology we have now do a time lapse and, you know, or something in spring, summer, fall, winter, put it together and there's so many things that we can do on a budget as far as technology it's never been cheaper i mean it's not dirt cheap to get good equipment but it's never been anywhere near this price a year i mean in the past four years as far as what we can get for high-end equipment for great results both for stills and video it's worth doing in the digital thing that's right you just experiment experiment get better get better it's never been a uh, more appealing time to get into wildlife and nature photography than today. And it's only going to improve thanks to Lightroom and their sliding bar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what were you going to say, Ron? You were going to say something oh, that
2: You know, you guys were talking about telling the storytelling aspects of it. And that's one of the first obstacles that I ran into with, with Swift Fox for sure. Because during the denning season, they're visible. But after the denning season, swift fox are completely nocturnal, and the the first fox that I ever saw actually was in about 2000, and I was working for the sheriff's department here locally. We're going out to a, a call, and I saw this uh, kit fox, swift fox, on the side of the road, and it was you know midnight, and it was out for a hunt, and I just went ballistic. The guy that I was with, he's like. Dude, you got to calm down. I said you don't understand. You know, we, yeah, I know we got to go take care of this issue, but that's a swift fox. You don't just see them everywhere. And then as I, you know, as I started to pay attention to locations, and they'll come back close. You know, red fox will come back to tr- traditional areas. Swift fox sometimes will, they'll be in the vicinity, but maybe within a half mile. And then you know, you also have to look at prey-based cycles because these gigantic you know we have prairie dog towns that stretch for six to eight miles you know these big huge complexes and you'll find the variety of predators in those complexes like burrowing owls you'll find ferruginous hawks swift fox badgers, badgers coyotes yeah just this huge variety of of predators well about you know on a on a 10 year or so cycle these gigantic prey dog towns will have the black plague basically go through the prey dog complex and there is nothing not a living soul obviously it either pushes the predators out or it has it affects them as well uh, because there won't be anything and so then you have to wait another you know six eight years for these things to build back up and so you have to kind of shift your focus around. But these are, again, they're all things that are a 20-minute drive from from where I live. And those type of, you know, little ecosystem memos you have to make for yourself as well. Because it, you can count on it most of the time, but there may be subtle changes that take place. Or a, a nest, for instance, that's frequented every year. And all of a sudden you have a big windstorm and this nest is blown out of the tree you're going to have to relocate it and it may not be in an area that's accessible to you. So there's a, I, I keep a, a field notebook that's, you can write in the rain, one of those right in the rain notebooks. You can do it on your phone now, but these little field notebooks, I can, I can draw myself little maps. And one of the things that I'll do is I'll draw my approach as well. So if I'm ever going to send my son out to a location, he wants to get some images I can give him the map. He's got the approach that he's going to need to take to get close enough or get in a position where he can actually get an image. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to learn for yourself. And it, you know, some of these things can take you a, a, a season or two to figure out. So it's always better to have somebody help you. And it's it's nice to be. I was that person that people probably got tired of hearing from me because I wanted to know everything right now. And so being on the opposite end of that spectrum now, I kind of understand what those guys were going through, but they were definitely willing to share and willing to share techniques, not necessarily locations always, but willing to share techniques and and field craft for the photographer. If you didn't grow up in the outdoors like I think the three of us pretty much did, those are some things that you're going to have to learn and some of them are going to have to be learned the hard way. Unless you have somebody that's willing to kind of take the time to teach you
1: good tips, good tips, yep,
0: I don't know that I have much more to add to it, but it's something to one. pay attention to and spend some time if you don't have these extreme budgets and
1: time and i have, I have one more one more to throw out there and I, and i i'm I know. Most of the world knows this is how it's done, but not everybody does. I want to tell people how to get amazing postcard, note card, print, canvas, calendar-worthy songbird images in their own backyard. Assuming they don't live in an apartment building in the center of town. But even there, this stuff happens if you have a bird feeder. You can simply set up a blind, and blinds are something you can make out of material or you can buy them quite cheaply at a lot of outdoor stores. You sit in the blind, you set up by the bird feeder and set up branches attached to the feeder itself. You can zip tie them on, whatever it takes, just fasten the branches and the birds will land on the branches beside the feeder. And you can switch out these branches. You get, you know, with the cherries on them and there's a bit of an ice storm and the cardinal lands on it. What happens there is the bird feeder is out of the frame, but where the bird lands, especially if there's already bird. So if there's a morning dove in the bird feeder, the cardinals not going in or vice versa, it waits on the branch. You can create a very shallow depth of field with your telephoto lens and create a crisp, beautiful striking image. And you can change that every hour, change the branch, change the type of tree it's on and have a lot of fun that way at virtually no expense and create images that are competitive anywhere for that type of market. That's a good did I point. Too, did I let too much out of the bag there? <laughs> I don't do so. No, birds, I think
0: you got to do it. I, I think I mean it's I see it everywhere. Yeah, like, I think you want to put that. I I see a lot of people in Colorado, especially people that live in the foothills do it with um hummingbirds. Sure. You know. And that's great practice because those little suckers are so fast and you know, a lot of times you don't want to include the hummingbird feeder. You just want to get the bird by itself, and it's great practice. You know, the other thing that I like to do in that situation is you can work on all kinds of depth of field stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, if, you ha- if you're able to put that branch wherever you want, you can create all kinds of different backgrounds and separation of
1: the, the animal, so
0: it's great practice.
1: Okay. Just thought of something else. When you put that branch up, put it parallel to your plane of of your sensor. Don't have it going away on an angle or toward on an angle because when that bird lands, there's going to be stuff going out of focus. If you put it parallel to your sensor, then the base will be in focus, and no matter where the bird lands, it should stay and create that kind of crisp image with that shallow depth of field. Yep. And that's
0: the perfect place to start, right? But then as you start playing and you want to, you know, you work on that for a week and then the next week, change it up a little bit and see what you can do because in nature, nothing's perfect. Mm-hmm. So when you are in Alaska and you're trying to photograph Arctic turns, you've got to be able to adapt and, and make it work. So the more practice you can get in in a controlled situation, the better.
1: You need to be able to move stealthily with your gear, right? Wrong, yeah, there's, Ron there's is our resident expert. It's all part of the learning. So that's the thrill of when the wildlife images turn out, right? Because it's not predictable. Any situation can change. We don't know exactly what that animal or bird is going to do. We have to be fast. And when we get it, it's something we celebrate and can cherish that experience. But yeah, this is all practice and do it whenever you have the opportunity. It's the best way to learn. That's what today's podcast is about.
0: Yep. You know, one other thing that I can add And it goes along with what you were saying about everything happening or everything's much cheaper. You you can't, today's time is the best time to be doing this stuff, right? Equipment is fairly inexpensive. You have digital feedback. you got immediate feedback on what you're getting. But I'm seeing more and more people do really cool things at night. Like Ron was saying, you know, you couldn't do that not too long ago. But now with these sensors and then triggers and all this stuff, if you have a place that's close to home, like Ron does with Swift Fox, he could potentially go out and set up triggers and set up remote cameras that would just work when he's not there. It still requires all that knowledge. It still requires the equipment, but now you're just going to let the camera do its thing while you're sleeping through the night and come back the next day. And I mean, that is huge. There's all kinds of fun stuff that I see a lot of stuff on Instagram these days where you'll get a cool picture of a fox or a cool picture of a, you know who knows what. But a lot of these noctur- nocturnal, Ron, from Alaska.
1: Yeah, we're on Nibugi. he Niebrugge. He's been putting up some great images that way from uh, Arizona. It was Arizona this winter.
0: Yeah, from his little, uh, what is it? It's like a photo retreat, retreat place. Yeah, and I'm sure that stuff took him a while to figure it out. You know, once you set up those remote triggers and you set up your camera and how much light, you know, you don't want to make it look artificial, but you want enough light in there to just pick up that for me, I guarantee you it would take a month of trial and error and playing around just to try to get the one image that I was super proud of.
1: But how gratifying when it turns out, right?
0: Oh, it's like finding a gold nugget. Put it in the
1: bank. I have yet to do that. (laughs) Okay, so no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button, give us a positive review, five-star rating, or the thumbs up if you happen to be watching our content on YouTube. And you can find more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at wildandexposed.com. Want to send it a special thank you to our producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes for this podcast to make us sound as good as we do and removing 75 shows per episode. <laughs> Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.